Welcome to EJB Talks, Rutgers Blaustein School Experts in Policy, Planning, and Health, where we talk with our faculty and staff experts, as well as students, about how the fields of public policy, urban planning, public health, health administration, and public and urban informatics affect your lives. Welcome to EJB Talks. I'm Stuart Shapiro, the Dean of the Blaustein School, and the purpose of this podcast, now in its ninth season, is to highlight the work my colleagues and our alumni in the fields of policy, planning, and health are doing to make the world a better place. This season, we're starting with a couple of episodes focusing on some of our new faculty that we did not get to uh, in the spring. And today, I am speaking with Professor Bernadette Barrett-Zars, who is in her second semester teaching in our world-ranked urban planning program. Bernadette, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Happy to be at Blaustein. <laughs> Excellent, and we are thrilled to have you. Um, a lot of your work is about planning, but also how we do planning. And I'm wondering how you got interested in that subject. Yeah, I think um, through my work, for sure, and learning and apprenticing and being told to do things that didn't necessarily align with the stuff that was written down that we were supposed to do. And then so becoming interested in, all right, why are we doing this? And then what does that result in in practice? Um, my first job out of college was uh, luckily in uh, Aleppo, Syria, doing historic kind of preservation and urban re urban uh, regeneration projects in the historic core. And I had, that seems crazy and I don't know, far away, but really it was, I was lucky because I was in a wonderful basement office with a team of really smart people trying to get things done amidst a swirl of institutional complication, <laughs> literally, you know, around 6,000 years of layers of stones on top of each other in history. Um, and, you know, to put it mildly, a complicated political uh, macro situation. The other reason I'm interested in how is just because, I don't know, the world doesn't work like we want it to. Planners want it to be equal and efficient and equitable. And nowhere where I grew up or have lived really has been that way. It's always been kind of on the edges of the law or the edges of where resource allocation reaches. And... Um, so, so what causes that, you know, that kind of classic gap between, between policy desire and policy action? Um, so that, that's part of it. Um, and, and not only does it not work the way we want it to, but a lot of, it doesn't really work the way we think it does either in many cases, either often I think the way academics or even I think the way public think the way it works. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the rules, obviously, um, that we that we make up aren't implemented. The rules aren't fair to the first place. The rules aren't applied equally. There's a lot of arbitrariness, even when they're applied with the best of intentions and values. And then there's unequal knowledge about the rules and systems. I mean, I don't know. That's one way of thinking about it. Another way is just irritating. When you're a planner and you make beautiful plans, a lot of times implementation is stuck to the discussion section or the last page of your report and or the memo it's like we should consider how this might unfold <laughs> in practice or 
things might, you know, become complicated when unfolded in the municipal at the municipal level. And that just strike, struck me as, um, as leaving the big fun mystery, interesting part for the last, um, leaving it out, not, not endogenizing it or not putting it in, inside of how we consider what we want to do is how we want to do things. So. Implementation will be challenging. Um, I've seen that <laughs> yes. Passive voice, man. All the <laughs> exactly. Way. Exactly. There's no agency here. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, um, that that that's exactly right. So when were you in Aleppo? I started living there, and I lived there for about two and a half years between 2006 and 2008, and then I went right. I went back you know, multiple times a year um, until 2011. Actually. Until the until mm-hmm. the civil war, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, now you've also been a bunch of other places. I think that have probably informed your trajectory. Can you talk a little bit about one or two more uh, experiences you had before sort of committing to academia? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I have committed to academia, Stuart. No, <laughs> being optimistic here. <laughs> Just joking. No, I, I feel <laughs> so incredibly lucky to be in a place where I can ask these kind of questions and be talk with somebody like you and all of my colleagues here. Um, after doing my master's in urban planning, an excellent degree, which Blaustein offers and is one of the top programs in the nation, I should say. Um, <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> and is really applicable across multiple forms of, of policy, of work, of activism, of moving in, in land and housing and health, I think that a lot of folks are interested in. So it doesn't have to be you know, you're not just drawing sidewalks. You're trying to fix really complex, understand how to intervene really complex problems. Okay, I'll stop being a teacher and, and a plug. For, but um, I, I think um, I, I started working on, on housing finance projects, um, and in particular housing upgrade finance to kind of link, um, link some sources of, of global or um, American money to entities making microfinance loans. Um, and that was really interesting and really complicated, but I learned a lot more about the world of money and interest rates and how um, how things that seem very fancy from a distance are may actually be made by a 25-year-old actually making calculations on a napkin, and that was me at the time. <laughs> um, and so that was one kind of one topical place that I think I, I learned a lot about kind of the money that goes into into and lending into urban uh, property markets and and also the types of ways that people talk about development. Um, and then after that, I worked as a consultant for the World Bank, um, for the IEDB, for Habitat for Humanity, for some national governments, mainly on housing policy and also on land and urban policy. And so I'd say geographically, the places where I've actually spent the most time and lived for multiple years are Mexico and Syria. Um, those are the two places where I can confidently cook the food and offer it up and people will be impressed. I'm learning increasingly more about New York and New Jersey. And so that's something important to me. So let me turn to your, uh, to your research a little bit now so we can give the audience a flavor of that. You talk about gray institutions. I was wondering if you could explain what you mean by that. I think of gray institutions as the patterns of daily practice that we construct with other people. 
And so I got into this or became interested in this really um, by sitting in zoning offices and land use offices in Mexico for a, a long time and watching how folks were deciding what to implement and what to do. And the things that they decided to do and the tools that they made and the practices that they enacted, like checklists, like forms on Excel sheets, like archives, like always saying, oh, you should go back and check your water permit if it was above a certain aquifer, but not another. Um, like weekly prioritization meetings. They're always there. You can count that they'll happen, um, but they're not written down anywhere. They're not told to them and they're not breaking any laws either. So when we have these gray institutions, um, you've, can, you, can you elaborate a little bit on how they exacerbate inequality, I think is what you said, or leave people out, if you will? And, uh, um, or to some degree, are they sometimes things that just sort of emerge organically to cope with rules or laws that don't make sense or that have problems? Yeah, something that's on my mind right now is um, uh, flood mitigation and adaptation for climate change around New York and New Jersey. And as you probably know, there is a $56 billion project around the New York, New Jersey Harbor um, <clears throat> from the Army Corps of Engineers. The kind of informal yet entrenched ways of working and setting up, for example, the public comment period pretty much systematically exclude anyone who is not like me, <laughs> anyone who's not already on an email list and obsessed with it and can take time out of their right. day with two days in advance to dial in or to go show up at a public meeting um, at Tuesday afternoon at 2 p.m. Um, and it's all, all of the comments are taken individually. And from what I understand, and I admit my country is somewhat foreign to me, but that this is really standard process for a lot of state and federal agencies that you have a, um, you receive public comments individually, that they're made, that they're circulated and promoted in relatively hard to access ways to some extent. Um, and so what this is resulting in is absolutely unconsciousable uh, exclusionary policy, I think, in which the um, metrics to, to that will determine where in which communities receive walls and other forms of protection against storm surge is determined almost exclusively on uh, property value and not the number of people who live there. And, and by the squeaky wheels who make comments in the comments, <laughs> in the public comments. And so those forms of, this is not the fault of anyone who works there, right? Necessarily. Um, it is not the fault of the regulations necessarily, although both contribute to it, but it right. gels and reproduces even, uh, through and ex kind of um, compounds, to borrow my colleague Andrea Restrepo-Miet's term, um, through, I would argue, these, these ways of working. Right. You know, and we could easily go down a public comment rabbit hole here because it's something I'm, I'm very interested in um, and have been throughout. I will note that the Biden administration uh, last 
maybe earlier this year or last year, did a number of open houses on how to facilitate participation, how to get comments and feedback from a broader public than those that usually comment on rulemakings. And I think there's a lot of great ideas coming out of that. At its heart, I worry a little bit, though, that maybe worry is not even the right word, but maybe it's it's with age growing to accept uh, that, that to some degree, people have more important things to do with their lives, right? Um, and, you know, if you've got to put food on the table and you have to uh, um, get to work and get the kids off to school and, and all of those things, and, you know, you work X number of hours a week um, to do that, you know, commenting and such, you know, part of it, putting faith in others to comment for you, um, even if those are somewhat elites, is maybe not the worst thing in the world. Um, and I, it's, you know, those are more sort of thoughts that go around in my head than anything I've written about it. But it is, I think, a, a, a question that we need to think about. Oh, 100%. That's been on my mind, too. And I'm, I'm, I'm new to looking at the U.S. structures of participation to some extent. Um, but I think it's really clear, and I've heard this now in the last couple of weeks from several people in different eloquent ways, and come to my own conclusion, these structures are just incredibly outdated. We need to rethink the entire apparatus. I mean, why is it that comments are expected that the onus of time and energy to learn is placed on, um, placed on individuals without any, without any assumption that they might be part of setting up the questions, right? Um, or that they might have knowledge instead of just comments. So I think the, you know, the institutions of participation that we've inherited um, came out of really interesting and good moments, um, some in the 1960s, right, that tried to get more voices inside of politics or inside of policy making or doing, but um, they were deeply flawed. And the fact that we haven't taken a big systemic radical relook at them is, um, is problematic. And so when little... I say, you know, well-meaning efforts like by the Biden administration to to think about how to do things differently. I would argue without looking at actually how people are doing them now and why they're doing them, why teams of the Army Corps keep, you know, putting out the email to the same people that they do always to invite for public comment, then you're not actually going to be able to change things. So it needs to be formal along with gray, whatever you, along with informal, along with just, yeah, big change. So do you uh, do you see your research um, focusing more on the U.S. now? What, what, what directions do you see your research going? Um, I think geographically, I hope to add the U.S. and in particular New York and New Jersey and coastal adaptation, um, which is something I've been working on now almost two years um, as part of my portfolio of really bigger questions of how um, how to understand local government efforts to change land use, involve people, adapt to climate change um, inside of, you know, state, federal, and international systems. And so um, a lot of, there's a lot of similarities across geographies in the ways that people have and make big 
climate plans or big disaster plans and then they don't happen <laughs> or those sorry those priorities are unfunded or um, they're not shared by the local government or you know they have big opposition that they haven't endogenized etc so how or you know the construction code and zoning code um, are are go completely against it so one part is kind of more technical and I enjoy getting into the weeds of um, land use and construction permits um, and those sort of thing. And another part is kind of more about governance and institutions. Um, and I think those also have similarities to some extent in other geographies where I'm working. Um, I have one ongoing project that I'm involving two um, Blaustein undergrads. Well, one's a Rutgers undergrad in civil engineering, actually, on construction permitting and flooding in both the Guadalajara metropolitan area and um, coastal and riverine New Jersey or municipalities that are with high flooding risk in New Jersey. And so we're using construction permits as kind of as one of the signals of government, of institutional processes that we can look at to kind of back solve for how are decisions actually being made in practice, as opposed to looking at the plans from the top down, here are the goals we have and what's being implemented, actually looking at what are the signals we can pick up from the ground to understand how policies are being enacted. So that's one one answer to the geography. I think um, another part is through the, the immersion, if you have, with um, community-based organizations and in, in environmental justice alliances in New York and New Jersey in the past two years, I've become much more interested in the ways that formal planning processes can shift to radically um, not just put more seats at the table, but change how the table is designed and who's invited to sit there and who does the inviting and who decides if it's even a table after all. And most importantly, if there's food on that table. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm, right now I'm still really interested in, in the in the in-government processes and the day-to-day -day of bureaucrats is my bread and butter. Well, you have a very target-rich environment and a fascinating, uh, <laughs> a fascinating area to look at. Um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Bernadette. Thank you, Stuart. It's really a, a pleasure to be here. And uh, I know you ask many of these questions too, so I'm going to follow up with lots of questions for you. Excellent. Excellent. Um, a big thank you also to uh, Tamara Swedberg and Karen Olson for their help on producing the podcast. We will see you next week with another talk from another expert at the Blaustein School. Until then, stay safe.